What I learned in that experience with that kind of L.A. startup and making that move was that there was so much about this world that I didn't know. I didn't know how to get investment. I didn't know who to talk to first. We didn't have the elements of a great team. We had a lot of chiefs and no Indians and no real money to pay anybody. We needed a prototype to be able to raise any money. And we just couldn't get there. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Brian Freeman, the founder and CEO of Heartbeat, a social media marketplace that empowers creators at any level from 100 to 100,000 followers to work with established brands. When I met Brian, I noticed pretty quickly that he speaks with a lot of energy. This infectious energy pulled me into Brian's world. I felt that I could see his vision. It was almost tangible. I realized that this energy is an integral component of a captivating leader and an attribute that has propelled Brian to success. But even more than an ability to inspire those around him, I think this energy also lets Brian inspire himself when everything seems as though it's on the verge of implosion. Brian is incredibly resilient, and as you'll hear, his ability to jump from one venture to another without losing confidence in himself is part of what makes him such an inspiring entrepreneur. This adaptable nature all started while growing up in rural San Diego. Brian didn't have the technological resources of a big city, and he moved around a ton. Most people would look back at a tumultuous and nomadic childhood with resentment, but Brian is grateful. So like my crew became basically taking things apart in my garage, inventing random shit in the yard to like use as like a weapon, just this deep curiosity of taking tech things apart and really starting to think technically at a really young age. Like by seven years old, I was taking watches apart and putting them back together. My mom was a former secretary, so she had a typewriter and she said, oh, we didn't need a computer. We had this typewriter and I, yeah, I must've been like eight or nine and I made them get this PowerPC Mac. And that's really where things took off for me. Like we got AOL on there. Like we figured there was this whole IRC world where you could transfer files. And so from a super early age, I was getting games and getting programs and teaching myself how to do that. Just again, you've got a kid who's super curious with not a whole lot going on. And this computer was this whole new open world of stuff to do. So I finally got a PC in seventh grade, and so there was no games for it. And games are obviously the thing that, like, drives a little kid's desire for computers first, and then everything else kind of evolves from that, at least for me. And so from there, it became like, okay, well, this computer I've got from Gateway is not fast enough. And so I started saving up money from, like, doing chores or random BS, and then, like, upgrading the RAM, and then upgrading the the video card. Eventually, it became okay, I got to redo the motherboard to get this new video card. So I like figured out how to basically take a computer apart and reassemble it. And then it was updating the hard drive. Then it was making everything faster and it became like all about speed. And so by the time I was in ninth grade, I knew how to build a desktop computer from the ground up. Brian made the most of the environment around him. After surrounding himself with a solid crew of like-minded friends in high school, he started to voraciously explore his interest in computers. It quickly became his number one priority. But there was a little time block that got in the way of pursuing his passion. That thing was called school. (laughs) 
I got really, really efficient at prioritization in class. So I figured out the pattern of like what teachers would test on. I was the kid in class that like talked enough but not too much to annoy anybody. I did all my homework in class as they taught it so that by the time I got home, I had the whole thing to myself. And I used all that time to get into the computer stuff, teach myself more about programming and design, and eventually by my senior year became looking at how to do more entrepreneurial stuff. So I had like a website company, which was like, I don't even think LLCs were popular then. So it was like a, oh, it was a sole prop. That company, I made extra money on the side for like helping my friends, dads or whatever, build their own websites, things like that. And then I also had this like company that I was building computers for all my friends' families to give them like this rockin' gaming PC. And then I worked at Circuit City. Where I made a ton of extra cash over two summers and then spent it all on random electronics. Circuit City was just a pretty poorly managed version of Best Buy and a lot less cool inside. But I was in love with everything in there. The cameras, the TVs, the audio equipment. And so I just taught myself everything because I was making more money than I ever knew what to do with. And I just bought two Palm Pilots. I tricked out my stereo in my car, like had a laptop, had a cool TV in my room. And my parents are like, okay, whatever, you'll figure it out later. Like, I guess just spend your money. While Circuit City enabled him to boost his knowledge and pimp out his car, there still existed a thirst for something that couldn't quite be quenched. He craved leadership and independence. He wanted to go into business for himself. He wanted to pursue entrepreneurship. By the time I got out of college, I had started a vending machine company because I had heard that was a great way to make cash. <laughs> it's actually a ton of work, but I did a little partnership with Pepsi. You could basically convince them to become a distributor locally. So instead of going back to Circuit City, I was like, I'm going to try my first entrepreneurial thing. And I always kind of saw myself as being some type of entrepreneur. But the thing that I've realized, like almost recently in my career was how much of a vacuum I was in down in San Diego. Being in LA, being in SF, being in New York, your exposure to people who have done something along an entrepreneurial journey, the startup community now, and it's how mainstream it is and how easy it is to access information. None of that existed. Picture you've got early internet, you've got flip phones, you've got Silicon Valley is like still the bubble happened and then the bubble kind of was in the midst of bursting. So it was still an insular community and world around startups and entrepreneurship. So that's where my skill set was, but I had no idea what any of it meant. Like I had no idea how to turn that into an idea. So business, these are not businesses. These are like me doing stuff, making some extra cash and like it's part entertainment, part teaching myself some entrepreneurial lessons. But school took a priority over that and I ended up going to school at University of San Diego. Brian had made school a priority because it was what you were supposed to do. He momentarily followed the conventional path. And often that convention reveals something inside of us. In Brian, the crucible of formalized education completely shifted his interests. My personal journey through school was pretty crazy. I initially had thought I was very enamored by 
working in government. I was so delusional, like thinking I was going to go into the CIA or something. I didn't have any mentors or anything to give me the pathway of like, okay, this is the true expression of what you want to do. So I was looking for like the most high energy, high intensity thing that I could think of. And I read a lot of spy novels <laughs> and I was pretty into politics and I'm like, okay, you know, maybe I can get into politics. I did political science my first two years of school and I realized as I was talking to one of my mentors at school and I was kind of like, how have I written 500 pages with taking 12 units in political science? He's like, oh, you better get used to writing long, pointless reports if you want to work for the government. And I was like, okay, that doesn't sound good at, at all. <laughs> there, I kind of had to revisit myself and got into the entrepreneurship program at USD. And then from there, I powered through that about three years to make up the difference, partly because I had taken some time off after my freshman year. I came out of a very, like a very pure world of Santa Fe Christian. We never drank. We never partied. We never did anything. We had no exposure to substance. And then my freshman year at University of San Diego, it was just kind of like this whole new world. And I got pretty into it. And so I was like, okay, this isn't really me. I need to pull back. And I also... I was obsessed with snowboarding all through high school. I was like, you know, I've got a buddy who lived up in Mammoth. I went up there and I lived with him for a season. And they get back into college and like kind of have like a reset of getting out of the cycle of that party culture. And then I was able to come back and, and graduate with nearly 4.0 after that. Brian had lost his way. I think a lot of us can relate. College is transformative and it can be hard to have all that change be positive. Something that we will touch on throughout this episode is knowing when to take a break, knowing when to pivot, and knowing when you need a bit of perspective. Brian knew that he needed to take some time to step away and realign. After taking the time to be with his own thoughts up in Mammoth, Brian was ready for something he could sink his teeth into. So he switched over to the business school, where he started working on small side gigs as a teller and a valet. Graduating on the eve of the Great Recession, Brian started off a career as a personal banker at Wells Fargo, where he was incentivized to sell, sell, sell. And sell, 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 he did. His spunk and keen ability to make personal connections enabled him to score a new job at a private bank for Union Bank. Union Bank had identified me and was pulling me into kind of a corporate banking program. They have this really cool thing that they do with younger guys and, and girls where they pull them in and basically teach them how to do major loans like who pays for the wind farms? Banks are lending money there. Or how about like a big new hydro facility? Union Bank is even involved in like the entertainment sector and providing cash for big movies. And like all of that has just like, holy God, there's a whole world I had never even thought of. So that was interesting. But it at the end of the day was still going to be number crunching and moving things around on paper. And I wasn't the guy making the movie. I wasn't the guy creating the wind farm. And I knew that's where I wanted to be. <laughs> this is kind of a random story. So while well, I had a question, like a random question that I just thought of, and I looked up the head of the commercial bank, called him. <laughs> and so this guy, he goes, hey, this is so-and-so. And I'm like, hey, this is Brian from uh, Union Bank. <laughs> and I was just wondering about like this thing. And he was like, oh, uh, and he just answered. And then I was like, okay, cool. Thanks, man. And it's like hung up. And so the branch manager came over like a day later and was like, you did not call this. I'm like, why wouldn't I? And she's, she's like, you just don't do that. I'm like, why not? How are we going to make any progress if I can't get these answers? It's not. And she's like, she's just don't ever do that again. And I was like, I don't like that. A month later, the guy calls me and goes, hey, I'd like to take you to lunch at the President's Club in downtown San Diego. He's like, I think you'd be a great fit for this. I'd like to mentor you, da, da, da. And so like, I, spent a, I had a couple more calls with him after learning about this other corporate program and got a sense of 
what it really meant and what the future was going to be like and like what my personality was. And he kind of thought I was a better entrepreneur than I would be a banker. So that was really the moment for me that was like, okay, I need to make a choice. Brian is a leader and this unfulfilling corporate nine to five job showed him that. This realization, this enthusiasm, this eagerness for taking control gave him the confidence to make a leap into the world that he was actually interested in. He quickly joined his friends at their startup, Get Me. And so I made the leap into this tech company because my friend had kind of had this idea that he was really excited about. The idea was that it'd be a social check-in solution for friends. What I learned in that experience with that kind of LA startup and making that move was that there was so much about this world that I didn't know. I didn't know how to get investment. I didn't know who to talk to first. And we struggled because other guys weren't leaving their jobs. We didn't have the elements of a great team. We had a lot of chiefs and no Indians and no real money to pay anybody. So like I was able to do the design work and I was able to do kind of the conceptualization, the financial modeling and that kind of stuff. But then we didn't really know where to go from there because we needed a prototype to be able to raise any money. And we just couldn't get there. It was about eight months of like banging my head against the wall. I was burning through the savings I had and I was like, you know, I need to go work at a real startup to understand what this means. Get Me has failed and Brian was without a job and at a loss for what to do next. He had left his secure corporate banking job for an unstable startup run by his friends that, to be honest, had absolutely no clue what they were doing. This can be destructive to someone's confidence, especially when considering future projects. It's experiences like this that make people think, maybe entrepreneurship is too risky. Maybe I should take that safe, boring office job. But Brian was different. He still embodied a sense of conviction and determination. This determination brought him to Mogul. So for Mogul, they hired me to do the Orange County market. And so I had to go build that market out and I ended up being pretty good at it. So I, we got 250 restaurants in Orange County on, I had the highest retention in the company and I did that about 18 months. I mean, I had autonomy, I was making money. I could go to the gym every day. I didn't mind the drive. I was reading every business book I could get my hands on through Audible. We just powered through that market and it became the most revenue generating market across the country, essentially in an overnight setting. Problem was I was making about three times more money than they had planned on any rep making and it was driving their use, their cost of customer acquisition through the roof and they were going to raise another round. They could either leave me in market and they knew if they pulled my comp plan, I would probably just change jobs because I was kicking so much butt. But it also gave me an opportunity to come and work for the CEO to manage these partnerships that I kind of figured out the early stages of how to do. So it was a, a really cool learning opportunity. And I did that for about a year in the Mogul HQ. That got me the exposure I needed to work for, the, his name is John Carter. He's a fantastic entrepreneur in San Diego. I actually met my fiance at that job working in there. So I saw, okay, this is how a real entrepreneur does it. This is what it's like to create a deck and pitch it. Like he had investors in there that he was pitching that I'd kind of eavesdrop on. About a year into that job, I had the idea for my first company, Wildfire, with um, my co-founder at the time. Okay, so Brian is truly a sponge. He takes any experience he comes across and absorbs every lesson possible. Working at Mogul not only taught him what it takes to create a successful startup, but it also showed him that his resilience and his ability to look at daunting tasks with little to no hesitation. With affirmation of his sales skills, Brian was ready for the next thing, and he started dreaming up the perfect startup idea. The dream he found himself most attracted to was an idea 
for a dating app. I was in kind of a like a weird situation romantically. And so I had gotten out of that relationship and Tinder had come up. Everybody was kind of like, is this magic? You can find the perfect person, it's super easy. That's what it felt like when you heard about Tinder. But the real experience of Tinder was this weird meat market feel. And I got out of that relationship, I got on Tinder and I was like, okay, this is not what I thought it was gonna be. I feel weird, I did a couple dates, like I just, it was so unnatural for me. And part of it was the expectations were all misaligned. It's like girls were willing to do it because it was the only product out there. But it still treated the women on the platform the way that, unfortunately, like a Miami club style. Like, get as many women in there, monetize the guys. And so the way to monetize the guys is give them maximum amount of access to the women on the platform, which doesn't take into account at all the experience of women, which are getting endless messages from everybody, matching with anybody they swipe right on. So it feels super weird. Getting harassment messages all the time and never knowing if they're matching with a serial killer or like a, like an awesome dude. So the idea was like, what if actually somebody gave a crap about women in an online dating product? And like, what would that be like? And so that was the original idea, which was wildfire. The genesis of that idea came just from hanging out, like having a couple beers with my friend at the time and then co-founder of that business. And then later we came to the idea of invite only for men. And that was through another brainstorm of a few weeks later. And that really had like a hook to it that the press really loved. I, I raised some money while at Mogul and then put in like a 30 day notice and then transitioned to full time CEO of that business. And then we raised an initial small round there and then like went to market building out a prototype and that's and we did the ditch the creeps video i think in july which was really put us on the map so our buddy was just kind of a really funny guy and we had some basic scripting and then we just kind of riffed all day long with this guy and he called himself he made up the term for himself as as the big cat <laughs> so like he was personifying that awful creep that every woman's afraid of in online dating that overly confident but just very weird character that um it's just like the worst first date experience. So we really, he really channeled that so that we uploaded it to YouTube. It didn't have a whole lot of initial traction. And then I read um, Tim Ferriss's like how to do a Kickstarter in like three weeks, which is an article you can still read, which is a press strategy based on essentially like a sales development roadmap of come make a bunch of calls, do a bunch of follow-up work, and somebody's going to react to you on a press side. And you just got to be there with some materials to be to follow up on that. And so we did that. And Elite Daily picked it up initially. And then Ask Men picked it up. And then from there, it was like HuffPo, Forbes, Washington Post. Once New York Times hit, it was over. Like, uh, and then, and then we're getting calls to go on live TV. And they, that was like the most exciting thing ever. And like the product wasn't live. There was no product. It was just a landing page and an email list to sign up with. This was just pure excitement about an idea of a dating app focused on women. Brian somehow managed to generate an enormous amount of hype for a product that kind of didn't exist yet. He had to deliver with a ton of pressure from everyone desperately waiting for the release of this dating app. Brian had set a bar that was maybe too high for him to reach on his own. 
I was pretty worried about the product going live, but we also had zero experience. So it was like, just got to get something out there. I thought the experience was going to be pretty bad, but I pushed the team really hard to release it anyway, which was driving our CTO at the time. Like he was having like a panic attack, basically, especially when all the bug reports started coming in. It was very stressful. But at the time, the traction was so intoxicating that like the stress was definitely minimized by that. So things were getting really interesting at that point because we had an app that was clearly a use case people were excited about. We had a ton of initial adoption through the press, um, but pretty strong fall off because of the app was kind of buggy. And it's because we built it from scratch. Like every other Tinder clone, uh, which is what you call the dating app that had a swipe system, they would all use these off-the-shelf back-end infrastructures that you could just basically buy that had guaranteed a very fluid messaging environment, a very fluid like uh, surfacing of people continuously with no lag. And we built our own from scratch. So we had a rock star developer who like just refused to do anything the easy way. And um, he would like stay up all night and like rewrite the entire code base from scratch. He was like a former nuclear engineer who had written the AWS integration for the government, like the American government. Jeez. So like he, the guy was nuts. He knows what he did. He, he knew what he was doing. So it was hard to argue with that. I was like, okay. But going into Q4, we kind of, we realized one, we had no budget for ads. And what I realized much later is being a dating app, you either are coming from the world of dating, so you know this world, or you're going to fail. And uh, But we just had no idea what we were up against. And uh, VCs kept telling us, and this is why they wouldn't invest. They're like, dating is really hard, and there's a lot of stuff that you're going to need to be able to do that is going to make this a very expensive thing. And you don't have a whole lot of experience. So uh, we had gumption, but we didn't have experience. The VCs knew that a dating app would be hard to pull off successfully. But this didn't quell any of Brian's enthusiasm. Brian was incredibly excited about Wildfire and couldn't wait to get his product out to the public. Many people interested in entrepreneurship get stuck at the idea stage. And it's easy to understand why. You want to get your idea perfect and have people enjoy your product. But the first version of anything is never perfect. In the real world, sometimes you just have to run. And Brian ran. He had that initiative and drive that many hopeful entrepreneurs lack, which carried his app past the idea stage to a tangible product. And while the tech behind early versions of Wildfire may have been rough, Brian made up for it with his marketing prowess. Going into Q4, we kind of came up with this college rollout strategy where we would go on campus and get sororities really excited about the idea of like a safe dating product because there was really only Tinder and then nothing else was appealing to millennials. And we would go to at least four sororities in a night So by the time we were at the third one, like the whole campus knew about it. And it was, okay, we've got an app. This is what what it's all about. Like you guys into that, they'd be stoked. And we've got something better for you. There's a competition going on for the next two weeks. Whoever can get the most users on this app is going to win a yacht party. That really triggered everybody. They were pumped on that. So we built a little game inside the app that you could unlock only if you knew like the secret pattern. And then they could go there and they could see how they were competing against the other sororities, which was a system that was powered by how many invite codes were used. And we found that those sorority girls organically went to their own personal social networks as a way of telling the story. So this is where the idea of this new business came from. But we would see them just flock to Instagram and Facebook to kind of announce this and try and kind of race to be the first and then that caught on and every sorority was creating those instagram posts and this was from san diego state and so we were able to track the traffic back to the app from those instagram posts and eventually people would burn out on it but at the end of two weeks we'd have four or five hundred posts about our brand on instagram 
Brian's most valuable personality trait has always been his sociability. When he applied his knowledge of social structure to marketing, he was a savage. Brian thought outside of the box and re-envisioned how a company could market itself. He targeted your typical sorority girl and found that having these girls post to their social media could reach exponentially more people than traditional advertising. Rather than marketing to individuals, Brian was able to spread wildfire to people's entire personal social networks. He had found a way to quickly and efficiently mobilize an audience to support his dating platform. And it worked. But despite all the hype, Brian's marketing could only carry wildfires so far. The problem was that December like 13th or something, 2014, Bumble came out. And that was just the end of Wildfire's like upward trajectory because we couldn't raise money after that because it was very, very close to our concept with a much stronger financial backer, a much stronger founder story. And, uh, you know, a female founder on a female angle makes a ton of sense. And so like once that happened, it became the ultimate uphill battle for us and especially around fundraising, which this dating doesn't work without that. So throughout that year, it just became more and more of like a, our face was just getting more and more bloody. VCs were like, we are not giving you $40 million, dude. Like you just don't know this world yet. By that middle summer, we kind of knew it was over and the other co-founders were starting to cycle back into roles where they could make money. I was still holding on to this business and like, maybe I can make it a video dating app, like the Snapchat of dating. And how did you feel with everyone leaving? That must've been really hard to almost be going at it alone. It was like, we can't keep paying you guys. There's no money. And it doesn't make sense for you to sacrifice everything. And also, I wanted to move in a new direction. And they were still bought in on wildfire. And I just, I could just see it. It was, we were done. Like we had to accept Bumble was going to win this. And I just knew it was over. And I didn't want to like keep trucking at that and like go pitch a million more investors for when I knew it wasn't going to work. So how do you know when to pivot? There are a couple different ways to know when to pivot. One is you're just your bank account is negative and no one wants to invest, which was the situation we were in with wildfire. So typically if your core product is not having success in a main way that you need to have success and you don't have a way to pull out of that, a good idea is to look at what are you doing well and where can you improve and where can you do that in a pretty fluid way that doesn't take a lot of new capital to prove out this new thing is worth somebody investing in if that's what you're trying to do or to make money off of this new thing and then grow over time with that and prove out the model enough where you can get some other type of investment. So what we faced was you know, a negative bank account, like the press being uninterested, the user base not growing, and then like big development needs that we didn't have big cash for. Another of Brian's valuable qualities is his flexibility. He knows when to pivot. When startups encounter hard times, there are often two ways young entrepreneurs lose. Either they persevere in exactly the same direction, ignoring how futile their situation may be, and hope for some miracle to save them in the nick of time. Or they realize how impossible it can be to succeed and cut their losses while they can. But Brian did neither. Rather than giving up or ignoring Wildfire's predicament, Brian decided to repurpose the company's biggest strength. Not the app itself, but the ingenious marketing strategy he had pulled off to promote it. My kind of full Hail Mary was to come up with this idea of something called Heartbeat and basically use the original user base of Wildfire that had like 
found a solution that worked better for that core idea of like a female focused product and like reinvent the idea as like a Snapchat for dating. We did a commercial and showcased the app and that actually got a ton of traction. So like I took the last 10K that we had and I was like, if I can get someone excited about this and uh, it ended up being a huge hit and getting picked up in the press. And so I had made a whole nother website on Squarespace and there was an email signup thing that basically mirrored the ambassador program that we had done for the college rollout. But it was, hey, do you want to get paid to post on Instagram when this thing goes live? Sign up here. And people were into that. And that drove thousands of people into that email sign up. And so I had like 3,500 people who had said they wanted to be ambassadors for this app that was never going to get built. I actually started another company. Like I started a CBD company with some of the investors from the wildfire. And I was kind of running both simultaneously because, because I just was continuing the fundraising process. But if like it totally died out, I wanted to do something that like I thought was really going to have some ability to generate cash. And I thought it would happen with CBD. So raised 50 grand for that, had that going a little bit. And I wanted my friend to be a rep for that business in Chicago. And she was like, wait, you have 3,500 people who are down to post for a random app and you have nothing for them to do? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's talk about the CBD thing. And she's like, no, no, hold up. Can my friends use that list? I was like, okay. I mean, I don't really know how to do it from here, but if you get somebody who's willing to pay, I'll figure it out. So she went and posted on the Techstars message board, like a really enticing hook. Like a good friend of mine has 3,500 millennial women who we have these details on who are down to create content on Instagram for a fraction of the price of influencers. And the next day I had like 20 emails and she says, loop me in, loop me in with all these people. And then I had to come up with a deck to sell them. And then we had to like, somebody bought it. Like at the end of October, somebody was like, I'm down for $2,500 campaign. I'm like, okay. Then from there it was, all right, now I've got to figure out, because I knew how to do MailChimp. So like I knew how to send mass emails and I knew how to use MailChimp's automation workflows. So I kind of started building those out so that send a mass email, that converts people into one bucket of people who want to do it. And then from there, we'll pick based off of a list that I can get by exporting CSVs from MailChimp, send them an email on what to do. And that was like the original core workflow that we did and it worked. And we had way more people who wanted to do it than we needed. Even off a list of 3,500, we could do a, a hundred posts and it was pretty sloppy. And like the client was like, this is kind of sloppy, but there's no dashboard. There's no nothing. It's just me doing stuff at home. And, um, but it built on itself. And then I met my co-founder, the co-founder of Heartbeat. And I had no experience with media. I had no experience with influencer. I had never sold to a media organization. And then I, and I meet this woman in LA who's got a network in LA, had gone to UCLA Anderson, had been in the startup community and also worked at Facebook. We were able to kind of combine this like the idea in my like product mind with like a solution that obviously had traction in some part of the market. And then I started driving up to LA every day. We started talking to investors. We've made some sales on some early small deals, 5,000, 6,000 here. We ended up getting a $10,000 client, which was just, it was just like, couldn't believe that. Brian has always been a visionary and is never one to recreate an existing product. With Wildfire, Brian pushed the boundaries with what a dating app could be and shifted focus from the male experience to the female experience. But with Heartbeat, Brian created something even more revolutionary. 
Influencer marketing has been around for a while, but usually brands have to use their own resources to gather creators. Brian created an entire system that acted as the middleman between brands and small, authentic creators. Essentially, he created a huge army that could be deployed for a brand's marketing needs. This was a great idea, and this time around, the VCs knew it too. They were ready to invest. Q3, Q4 is a dark time, barely paying my bills. I used to eat only hamburger and broccoli because it was the cheapest thing I could get that also fit in with kind of like a decent diet of like not gaining a bunch of weight. So, so I was only eating that for two meals a day for like three months. And so getting a $10,000 client was like, that is a hundred times more money than we ever made on monetizing the dating app. Like there is a completely different world out here that I need to figure out. And so Kate and I started working on that. We started booking some initial clients in LA. They were small. It's not like we were selling to Disney, but we were selling to these other startups that were kind of in the community. Starting in 2014, I was living off of savings. And then eventually I had to liquidate the 401k. Yeah. My personal financial situation was rough. It was rough. It was like full blown first year college student savings. The bank account was literally negative. It was like negative $3,000. And so I had this closing meeting with this investor and I was just trying to get the money to kind of like stay in business to kind of pursue this idea of like this monetizing of real people through content creation and the freaking sewer backed up so that sewer overflowed in my bedroom's bathroom and so there's like little sewage on the floor it's like coming up and i'm like oh god so i like locked out the toilet like while i'm on the phone with the guy like i'm on mute he's like asking me questions and i'm like okay i gotta turn the water off and like, like oh it's the fan right there like literally there's shit in on the ground and like and and it's also like 92 degrees so i'm like sweating like oh it's god. horrifying um ended up being a lot worse for the guys downstairs but um <laughs> Jeez. So yeah, and we closed them. Like, it, I, you know, I got the commit on the twenty-five grand. While wow, like piles of paper towels are like cleaning because I didn't want it to get into the carpet and it was like creeping towards it. Uh, yeah, that was gnarly. That was super gnarly. And then in May, we ended up closing a VC, the first VC I'd ever really closed for like a hundred grand. And that's when I, my fiance was like, "We're out of San Diego. There's nothing here." Having gone through a rocky release and the subsequent downfall of Wildfire, Brian was ready to put in the work to ensure Heartbeat would succeed by any means possible. This is a key trait for any successful entrepreneur. Starting a business is like taking care of a newborn. You have to love your product so much you are willing to sacrifice everything, including your quality of life, to enable its growth and success. Brian did exactly that, and his sacrifices definitely paid off. Man, we've had a lot of really crazy experiences. So we ended up having a fantastic deal with Amazon at the end of 2016, which really was the defining moment for the company. So our CTO, John, had just started a couple months before, and there were like five of us at the time. A guy, I was on the phone with him this morning, he's a longtime advisor and a good friend now. He was working at an agency that had a relationship with Amazon. And so he knew what we were capable of and like the idea. He plugged us in. We ended up selling an $80,000 deal to Amazon through this agency. And what we quoted them was just so insane. So we had to get 10,000 people to post for Amazon in one month. And thank God we did it because the 
insanity that ensued over the next 30 days taught us so much about how to do these things at scale. And our naivete kept us from saying no to the deal. And so like we just forced ourselves into one of these rebirthing moments where, you know, I'm there till midnight and I'm coming in at 6 a.m. on the weekends and we're experimenting and we're doing stuff and everybody's making changes on the fly. And we learned a lot about how to do high conversion subject lines. We learned a lot about what to put in an email to like get people excited really quickly visually. Using emojis works really well and two works really well. So we did two on the front of the subject and two on the back of the subject. And they wanted moms, which we actually didn't have a very good base of. We mostly had women 18 to 24. Um, and we're like, oh, we'll, get, we'll just get some moms and like, we'll just use Facebook ads. Well, Facebook ads during Q4 are a hundred times more expensive than the rest of the year because everybody's buying on them at the same time. User acquisition costs went from two cents to 150 bucks. And so I had to figure out where to go get moms. I was cold calling websites that sold baby products and offering them like the deal of a lifetime of if you email blast them this thing, if they convert into my customer base and end up doing a post, I'll give you seven bucks. Some of these entrepreneurs are like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll take some extra cash during Christmas. And that worked. I mean, we generated tens of thousands of new users that way. Not all of them created content, but we got a ton of that top of funnel stuff that we ended up being able to use long term. So we took out of that Amazon lesson how to do these large scale deals. And we ended up doing 10,000 posts for them. Amazon was pumped and they're like, this is a great one to do another one. They wired the money to the agency and then the agency went out of business and didn't pay us. So that money represented like five months of runway because we were so lean. And so I went from having six months of runway to one month of runway. Well, yeah, we thought we were going to be fine. You know, like we don't need to have this super high margin. We just need to get this done and this is going to put us on the map. And it did. And we were able to do kind of do a smaller round of financing with our existing investors. And they were like, oh, you guys are doing great. This does suck. Like it's okay. And we brought in a couple other key players and Techstars came in on that round. And that really was a big turning point for our business is going through that program. Brian has this incredible ambition and drive that we see in all his entrepreneurial endeavors. No matter how unprepared he may feel, Brian never backs away from a challenge. This is one of the things that fascinates me about entrepreneurs. They continually put themselves in vulnerable situations, in situations where they can fail and fail big. But a lot of that time, vulnerability is worth it because ultimately it can lead to the greatest successes. Brian understood his deal with Amazon would be a huge risk, but that possibility seemed to only motivate him to work harder. This mentality catapulted Heartbeat to success. 2018 was really where we figured out how to sell beyond the startup sell. All of 2016, all of 2017 was selling to people who were in the startup space. And so we saw that like what they wanted was a lot of options for making changes and testing things the way you would with Facebook ads, but we weren't equipped for that yet. We had a team that was helping service these campaigns, so we needed to charge a certain amount in order to carry a margin that we were comfortable with, and I saw that the clients, they were happy with certain elements, but not with the price. So I knew if I could get the price down 60-70% through technology, I'd have a winner. And so 2018 was a track of figuring out how to sell to these higher ticket clients, and like, what do we need to do with the business to do that? And simultaneously mapping and then building out a software that worked like Facebook ads for regular people creating content. And that's what we have now. It's always been our dream to like log on to a platform that doesn't charge you an annual fee to get in there and go, okay, I know who likes my podcast. I want to ask a couple survey questions, get that feedback, and then get those people who answer a certain way to go create content about it. Maybe it's a video. Maybe it's a YouTube thing. Maybe it's an Instagram story. And that gets you more podcast users, but it doesn't cost you 25 grand. There's nothing in the market like that. That's always been Kate and I's vision is to have something that works for small business 
medium-sized business and large businesses. And we're like right on the edge of that now. And we also now have just to kind of take the the rags to like semi-richest story. We have a 24-person team here in Venice. We're almost profitable. We've raised $4.1 million now. We're not worried about paying the bills. I'm not worried about paying my own bills. So it's going fantastic. After years of sleepless nights and sacrificing everything for his business, Brian was finally reaping the benefits of his success. But even though Heartbeat was thriving, Brian was still looking into the future with uninhibited ambition. Heartbeat is poised for success, and Brian is excited to further scale up the most successful elements of his brand. As we keep evolving our technology to have really clear communication of what we're doing for clients or what they're doing for themselves. So they can see the users who are participating in their campaigns. They can learn about them because we're generating 20 to 50,000 survey responses every day right now on the Heartbeat Marketplace. So what I'm really excited about is scaling up that audience of members on Heartbeat, those ambassadors, um, which we're doing much more of now. We've also launched a self-service tool that allows a brand to come in and get content same day. And um, we're so close to that being a reality there's nothing like that in the space that could significantly change the trajectory for tons of different businesses and for the consumers it's it's this rewarding uh value making experience we find that like 90 percent of the users who create content for brands end up becoming customers of those brands long term so it's like way cooler than getting like a thank you email hey here's eight bucks to create a post around the thing you just bought and now you're like holy crap this brand's really investing in me i'm almost sponsored like you're very bought in so over the next six to nine months we're really going to be scaling those elements of the platform and i think things are going to get really exciting what he would say to help young entrepreneurs. Brian had some words of advice. Don't keep that idea hidden to yourself. The idea that somebody else is going to go steal it is preposterous. If somebody does, it's all about execution anyway at the idea stage. And the other thing about your idea is it's about 5% of what you're going to end up doing. As you get into market, get more experience, get customers, get feedback, whatever, it's going to evolve and it's going to change so much. So you really have no incentive to keep your idea to yourself and keep it safe and keep it hidden because you're never going to do this by yourself. You're going to need to convince people to do it. You need that feedback or you're never going to get this thing live anyway. So first thing is to like get it out there and get as much feedback as you can quickly. And then the second thing is get something live. If it's technology, a website, if it's a physical good, a prototype that people can play with quick. That's what you got to do. Just call that random banking guy and ask people what they think and take the first move. Because if you're always at an idea stage, you're never going anywhere. So I think really it's kind of taking that first move and like getting something in people's hands, whether it's a website or a physical good, that will help you take the next step. Brian's energy feels like a great cup of coffee. His enthusiasm and eagerness drew me in, encouraged me to sit a little closer and listen more intently. It is this energy that has enabled him to smoothly move from one endeavor to another without any apprehension. He comes out of every challenge with a new skill set that he utilizes to propel him to his next venture. I was struck by Brian's adaptable temperament and was impressed how he used passion to fuel his vision to lead his company. Brian is a machine. He just keeps moving forward and never lets anything get in his way. But at the same time, he doesn't look at life linearly or get bogged down by one idea of a successful path. Brian has the ability to roll with the punches in a way that is liberating. As a young guy getting a start in the world, whatever that means, I found Brian's story incredibly revealing. So I'll leave you with this idea. Brian failed and failed hard, but perspective allowed him to get back up. 
failure doesn't mean that you're starting from scratch or starting over. It means that you have the opportunity to try again with experience. This episode was a blast to put together, and I want everyone who was part of putting together this episode to tell you what they did. So without further ado, here's the Finding Founders team. Hi, my name is Adrian Tapia, and I was the lead producer for this episode. My name is Charlotte Isidore, and I worked on the editing and helped write the script for the voiceover. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Bowen, and I helped edit and make the voiceover script. Hi, my name is Dharma Shah, and I helped edit and add music. Hey, my name is Luke Riggin, and I edited part of this episode. My name is Sahaj, and I helped edit and find music for this podcast. My name is Maddie Boson, and I helped edit this podcast.